Welcome to the Journey to Justice podcast. This is episode 13 of our Economic Injustice series, where we explore individual and collective action for economic justice in the UK and dive deep into causes of wealth inequality. In this episode, our speakers talk about diversity, equality and access to nature and anti-apartheid campaigning tactics. You will hear from Maya Rose Craig, who set up Black to Nature when she was just 13. Black to Nature houses activity camps in Bristol, UK, to help give young people in visible minority ethnic communities access to nature and tackle the lack of diversity in green spaces. I've been running Black to Nature for about five years now, and I'm 18, so I actually started it when I was 13. It, it all started because Essentially, I started noticing that there's a real lack of accessibility, a real lack of diversity for the countryside and nature and green spaces. And as someone who grew up in a really nice rural area, who has a really strong connection to the outdoors, but is also half Bangladeshi, I really wanted to do something to combat that. Um, So I started Black to Nature to run these um, nature camps essentially every year where we're bringing kids out from inner city Bristol and giving them that opportunity to spend time in an environment where they've quite often never really experienced before. So I think for our communities who aren't really engaging with the environment at the moment, it's not very good for their mental or their physical health. I think that, you know, they, they really think of themselves as urban peoples and we need to step back and think about our roots and where we've really come from. We do have a bit of a, well, a massive issue with mental health in a lot of our BAME communities in the UK. Um, where they're massively disproportionately represented, you know, in the percentages of people getting sectioned. And I really hope that going forward, because we have a lot of conversations about mental health, that these kids will learn to look after themselves. Um, And a lot of them have said that when they are feeling stressed, they will probably go to a park or something like that now. And I think making them aware of their own health, mental and physical, and how it's dependent on the world around them is the key conversation that comes out of these camps. They've definitely been a massive learning curve where that very first one we ever did, I feel slightly sorry for those kids because they came and it was great, but it was absolutely jam-packed with activities from dawn till dusk. And they were just exhausted just from being in a new environment. So adding all of these things on top of that when the real experience really was being out in the countryside and camping. But those activities, we still do lots of them every camp. Um, And we do a real range just because not everyone engages with all the activities we do. And we always want there to be something for everyone. So we do things that are more on the scientific side of things like bird ringing and bio blitzes. But we also do do a lot of more creative activities like we've done bird and nature art or nature photography in the past. I think that very first camp was very, you know, very DIY in terms of we were just borrowing tents off of friends and family Um, we're just borrowing equipment off of people but these days it's very you know it's very formalized we have these massive tents we have loads of equipment we have I don't know sleeping bags and coats and wellies because we just don't have the expectation that any of the kids that we work with are going to have anything that's suitable for spending a weekend camping in the countryside because why would they and we used to have to get get them to drive to a certain point but these days we actually have a minibus that just goes and collects them all and brings them out um, just to help with transport and stuff like that because we know it's really difficult. 
So it's, it's really funny looking back now because that first camp we were struggling to get kids. We were struggling to encourage anyone to tell them this was a good idea that they should send their kids out to the countryside for a weekend. And now, um, you know, we're massively oversubscribed and the issue isn't that we can't find enough kids. We have way too many kids signing up. It's that we don't have enough funding to bring them all out with us. And a lot of these kids, we have conversations with them about lots of different things, whether it's environmental issues or racism at school or their future or like them and the police. You know, we have conversations with them about so many different important things in life. And I think having those conversations with people where they have never really even thought to talk about things like that before is so, so important for a lot of these kids. Originally, it didn't come from a very politicised place, really. I just really... I guess I just really thought it was important that everyone had that opportunity because I love nature so much. And so I, that's why my project started off very grassroots, just like, you know, spending time with people and encouraging them to go outdoors, which I still do a lot of. And to be honest, it's my favourite part of all the work I do. But I also, on the other side of things, do a lot of campaigning in the climate change movement. After that original nature camp in 2015, I wrote to a lot of these nature organisations and asked them what they were doing about this issue. Um, and nothing basically was their answer and they all invited me up to come and have discussions with them about diversity and I think at the time I was very excited but I think looking back I am far far more cynical because I was like 13 years old and they were asking me for my expertise about diversity which seems bizarre to me now so I ended up organizing yeah a conference in 2016 called Race Equality in Nature where I instead invited them all together to have a conversation with actual race experts from various communities in Bristol to literally just sit down and tell them what the barriers are, why communities aren't engaging, and then tell them how to solve it. It was super simple. I just sort of felt like we'd given them instructions on how to solve this issue, sort of. And I just felt like, I suppose we'd made it very simple for them in a way that should have made it easy to start taking action. We, I didn't expect them to solve it in the next few months, but I expected them to do some things. I think it was a very, no, it is a very white middle-class liberal sector. And I think being told that they, they were the ones that were failing to engage with communities was very uncomfortable. They didn't like having those conversations about race and to admit that there is a problem and they need to do something about it. And I've only just seen them start to move on from that in the last maybe year or two. But in terms of the actual campaigning side of things, I think um, it's been really difficult in a way that if I I think if I'd known when I originally started how difficult it was going to be I might have <laughs> I might have questioned sort of committing myself one of the reasons I was able to succeed when I was relatively young starting all of these projects because there were so many people that were absolutely willing to treat me like an adult and to treat me with respect and to support my project and my campaign and I couldn't have done it otherwise two of my aunties are also race activists in Bristol um, so I think when we we're starting up they're able to give a lot of advice about different things like I was quite young at the time and I wasn't expecting like the vitriol um, on social media just for talking about race and things like that which again I think at the time I sort of accepted as being part of social media but now I look back and I was like oh I was 13 who was sending nasty messages to a 13 year old the most annoying thing for me at the start was people telling me that they were the ones who knew they were the experts um, when they literally had no idea like they didn't have contact with any of these communities they hadn't had those conversations it was nothing 
Um, and considering that I, when I was talking to people after that first conference, they literally said, um, I never even heard or thought of the majority of things that you told me today. Like that shows what an absolute distance there was between these communities and these organizations that wanted to, um, you know, engage with them. And I feel like we're in a very transitional period at the moment, especially post Black Lives Matter where I feel like there is potential for change. As a race activist, this summer was extremely exciting for a period. I personally wasn't able to go to the uh, protest that brought down Colston in Bristol, which was very disappointing when I found out afterwards. Um, I would have loved to have been there. I think it does show that there are a lot of people that care about issues like this when it comes down to it, which I think is the most hopeful thing you can take away. There are people that care um, and it means that next time when we need people, hopefully they will be on standby um, and they hopefully will be there alongside us to help us, you know, force that change. Like, like I said, I work in a lot of circles that are um, white liberals. And again, they, I think it was the situation where they were suddenly faced with their own complacency and they wanted to do something about it in some shape or form. And so I was suddenly um being faced with lots and lots and lots of conversations with people about race um explicitly about race in a way that i hadn't been having much before you know we have all these massive issues of excluding people from other countries especially indigenous people from the climate change movement when they have so much to contribute because of this sort of western imperialist feeling that a lot of these countries have about themselves where they feel like they're the best and they're the most intelligent and they're the ones that are capable of combating these these issues and I think it's really holding the movement back and I think that this is an issue that people are only just starting to talk about a bit um, through this concept of like global climate justice where people are essentially pointing out that it's the west that's caused these issues it's the global north and it's mainly poorer countries in the global south who are taking the brunt of the um, negative effects and I think that Bangladesh is already one of the most hard hit countries. There's already more than 4 million climate change refugees in Dhaka, the capital city. Um, I know my own families there has been really struggling to grow crops and things like that because of the weather patterns. Um, there's more and more cyclones, you know. It is a country that is experiencing climate change right now in a way that people just aren't really talking about. And I genuinely think that we need to see um some responsibility taken by these countries that have created this issue you know it's, it's all very well us cutting back our carbon emissions now us cutting back and becoming more environmentally friendly but when there's other countries that are already suffering already dealing with the consequences i personally think it's our moral responsibility to go out and to help them too especially countries like bangladesh which are post-colonial and are arguably very poor because of Britain's influence during the empire, because of historical reasons, because I think there is then that double whammy of responsibility. I don't know whether or not Bangladesh would want our help is a whole different thing, but I think that is our responsibility to try. I partially hope for a lot of these younger kids that we work with, because some of them are really young, that they won't ever have to become environmentalists themselves. Um, but I think that's a little bit too optimistic I suppose but I think in general the biggest thing is I personally always think that if people haven't experienced and known to love nature and the environment they have no reason to try and save it they have no reason to go up their way to defend it 
and I really hope that going forward at least some of these kids will understand why defending our natural world is so important is such a key issue going forward because we have had those conversations about why nature is important but also how that links into poverty and inequality and things like that and I suppose helping them understand the world around them and yeah I hope that they will understand that movement in some shape or form you know we're not expecting them to sort of be spending their weekends in nature reserves after these camps that's sort of not the point but we just want them to have formed that connection with nature and to be aware of the nature around them like we went back and we talked to some girls a few years ago and they said the biggest thing was just that they were so aware of all of the different birds that were flying around as they walked to school and things like that now which just made me so so happy I mean I always say this about activism in general but I absolutely think that the key thing is to go out and do something like I think it's so easy to agonize over how much experience you have or whether this is the best, most effective thing you could ever do ever. Um, and if, you know, trying to list out your priorities, numbered one from 10, you know, all of these different things. But I think none of that actually helps. And if you just go out and do, even if it's not the best ever thing you could have done, you're still helping. I, f I feel like I'm feeling, sounding very hopeful about the future today. Is I'm very excited to see what the future holds for Black to Nature because I feel like it could hold so much potential um, and I would love to see that in action. You will hear from Leila Kogbara who campaigned for the anti-apartheid movement in her local area of London handing out leaflets, encouraging people to boycott South African goods and building networks with churches and trade unions. Leila talks about how she helped organise letter writing to members of parliament, national days of action and music benefit events to raise awareness of the issue. Hello, I'm Leila Kogbara and I um, am been volunteering with Black Thrive Lambeth for nearly two years now, and it's an organisation that seeks to change, make systemic change to the factors that cause the disproportionate mental ill health amongst black people. And I have just relatively recently set up Black Thrive Global, which I'm a director of, which is a community interest company, in order to spread that beyond Lambeth, that, that work beyond Lambeth. <clears throat> Today, I want to talk about the anti-apartheid movement mainly, which has influenced my approach to thinking about race and structural racism and my the tactics and focus on the long game and the long haul and actually taking action that's what i'm going to talk about today um, so, so the issue being addressed was the fact that in South Africa there was an apartheid and the laws basically said that black people were inferior. That was a summary of the laws really. So um, people were not allowed to um, live as human beings with rights to um, good education, healthcare, employment and so on and the fact that it was in Africa and that the between the Dutch the British particularly had were colonized but 
they colonized the place, but then settled, which was a bit different from other colonizations. So that was the issue. So one of the things that I think is an important point to note is that I was part of a massive movement. So it wasn't just me. So I joined 1986, which is a long time ago. And um, by the time I joined the anti-apartheid movement, it was a movement already that had, had got traction. It hadn't always had traction. And today everybody thinks, well, we were all anti-apartheid, weren't we? But actually it had taken many decades to get to the point where it was considered unacceptable. That was it. And then I quite quickly became secretary, co-secretary of the Southwark anti-apartheid group. So I think at a high level strategic, um, think of it in a high level strategic way, one tactic of um, hyper local action and act activity on the issue so that people have something to do. And I think that was one of the big successes of the anti-apartheid movement that it gave ordinary people something that they could do and that was to um, boycott South African goods. So you've got a massive issue, which is how do we put pressure on the South African uh, racist government to change? And so the different levels of what could be done. So there was a different boycott. There was an economic boycott, which is don't buy their goods. Um, don't buy their, um, don't, uh, don't uh, let their sports people and artists come to the UK and don't, let's not go there either. So there's a, a way of getting people to not support and uphold economically, socially, sports-wise, artistically. So it gave people in all walks of life something to do. So there was a boycott of Barclays Bank, for example, and that was huge for the students and eventually led to Barclays withdrawing from South Africa. There was a boycott of cricket, football and all the sports, artistic boycott in terms of singers and performers not um, coming to the UK, white ones and people not going to South Africa. So those were the kind of big things on a local level in Southwark. What we did every Saturday, we would do something. Um, so Saturday mornings, we would either be outside the uh, supermarket on the Walworth Road, handing out leaflets. We had a stall handing out leaflets, telling people not to buy South African goods, or we would stand outside the Shell garage on Walworth Road. Um, we made a massive and lovely banner. So it was a huge, huge banner that was painted and it had a symbol of Shell and a symbol and a symbol of dripping blood. And we would, and it said, um, Shell fuels apartheid, boycott Shell. See that artistic uh, banner caught attention of everybody walking by, passing by and so on. So it was an attention grabbing thing. And at the same time, we would then be handing people leaflets not to come into the garage. For example, in the supermarkets, we would go around the supermarket, fill up loads of different trolleys. So 10 of us or 15 of us or how many would go around, fill up our trolleys with South African tinned fruit and vegetables and wine and so on. 
and then we would take it to the counter, unload it all, and then not pay, i.e. Not, not take it away, but just cause, basically cause disruption to draw attention to the issue. Letter writing to members of parliament and early day motions in parliament that we would recommend and ask our MPs to sign, asking each of us requesting meetings with our local MPs to get them to put pressure. We didn't have social media and, and at all. We didn't even have mobile phones and it's hard to imagine. So we had a phone tree. So whenever there was a need to mobilize urgent action, for example, to get everybody to a particular place, we had a phone tree. So I phone one person, one person phones the next and so on. So that we'd cascade it in that way. And even though people think, oh, that thank goodness we've got mobile phones and text messaging and so on now, I actually think that there was something that helped with the campaign by having to do speak to people and do things in person. And one of the things that I would say was a challenge was um, we were trying to also get people to join the anti-apartheid movement because the joining, I can't remember what the membership fee was, but it was tiny, but we were trying to get people, you didn't have to join in order to take action, but trying to get people to join because that also helped uh, raise uh, money, obviously, for the activity. Um, but I think that there was an issue with black people joining the anti-apartheid movement. So it was very white. And that's something that we tried to address. So from Southwark anti-apartheid, we pushed for uh, the anti-apartheid movement to think about how it takes on race inequalities in, in, in Britain as a way of getting the black community to feel a part of it. So black people instinctively would boycott and would take action and so on, but they didn't necessarily join the movement. They, they, there was a good connection with the people in South Africa who were black, Asian and mixed race or colored as South Africans call them. But we didn't have within the movement a good representation of uh, black people. So we did a number of things to reach out in terms of making the movement diverse. Cause I think that's one of the other things that I would look back on and say that should have happened sooner is how do you connect with the full diversity of any of us of the local area in your activity. So in Southwark, we did have black members who were Southwark uh, members and most of the black people were very supportive who were in the area. But one of the things we did was to, when Mandela was released, we arranged for him to have breakfast with the Stephen Lawrence's parents for example. And that made a big difference, both to their campaign, because after Mandela had been seen, that was when the police started, things started changing for the Stephen Lawrence campaign. But it also was signaled and gave us, in terms of black activists in Britain, it really increased the visibility and the sense of common purpose with black activists in Britain. So I think there is something about how do you reach out to and signal to different groups that, that, that it is the same struggle. At national level, there were churches and trade unions, massive involvement of those. Um, and then at the local level, 
you had the translation of that into this kind of ordinary everyday ways in which people engage locally with their, uh, in terms of their faiths or their um, trade unions and so on. There would be national days of action on a particular thing, which everybody across the whole country would do the same thing on the same day. Um, I think you see some of that with Extinction Rebellion now, um, that sense of a, a big purpose that you can all buy into and then do something locally. Um, so the, 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 one of the aims obviously was to um, make the South African regime, apartheid regime, feel the pinch economically and socially and, and make them pariahs as a way of the longer term aim being to free the political prisoners, give people of all races human rights. And so that was the ultimate aim, and end apartheid. So that was the aim, which was very, very clear. And everything else was working towards that aim. So you have an aim. So if you have an aim, end apartheid is the aim, end apartheid, give people equal rights, then everything else is in support of that high level aim. So you've got the um, focus on the economics, get the British people to care sufficiently that the politicians then have to care. Um, enough politicians have to care, obviously not all of them uh, cared, but enough politicians have to care and have to take account of what their constituents are saying. And you've got different people in different walks of life and interested in different things with something that they could do. So we, um, so getting the sports boycott, for example, would speak to sports fans and you could get sports fans on board. The artistic sports boycott would speak, speak to people who might be um, fans of jazz or, or, or any kind of uh, music. And so that, so, so you've got different people involved by speaking to different types of things. We did little benefits as well. We had benefits for fun. So that was the other thing I think was quite useful was to make the activities fun. So people wanted to participate and people built friendships because what you're doing is you're involved in something which you all care about and you have a, a kind of set of values that are similar. So, so some of the people that I've made friends with then, then are still my friends today. Before Joe Brand was mega famous, she did a gig for us, for example, but she was kind of becoming well-known at the time. And we have a hall in Southwark, I can't remember what the, which hall it was, a hall in Southwark where people crammed into it, it was absolutely rampacked, where she did her uh, co comedian uh, gigs, um, uh, she, she did her comedy gig and but it was a focus on the issue and it was a way of having fun laughing at the situation and some of the ridiculous things that would have were happening in the, in the name of in the racist things that were happening but at the same time so you're raising awareness in a way that people could enjoy and have a, so it was a good, as good a night out as anything else, basically, that you would want to go to. And why not this, as opposed to something else? So that's the other thing I think. And 
is, to, is things which are actually fun to do. So, so local government was a huge ally, generally, across the anti-apartheid movement. Um, we had um, local authorities against apartheid, and they, again, all um, took action to boycott, not to source any of their supplies. And of course, they've got massive purchasing power and investment power. So the, the amount of local government pensions that are invested, for example, it's hundreds of millions of pounds across the country. So not investing in, um, uh, insisting that the pension funds, for example, are not invested in anything that upholds apartheid was huge. And all of them had, mo did, had motions and statements of support. And in ca the case of somewhere like Islington and Haringey, they actually housed the um, refugees from South Africa and the frontline states who were affected. So that was also Zimbabwe, Botswana, um, Angola, Mozambique, and so on. The people who were the, the countries that were surrounding South Africa and impacted by apartheid. The trade unions. What's good about the trade unions' involvement in anything really is that they can. They've got members across different sectors. So you'd have trade unions with members in shops, in banks, in um, you know businesses that um, who could mobilise their members basically to support. And then you also we also had lawyers against apartheid, architects against apartheid, and so on. So you had different professional groups that organised themselves into. Um, blocks where they could play a particular role. It's interesting because you forget, I forgot it, I forget anyway, all of what happened. But that, I think the, the getting young people, children and young people involved is another thing. And again, because of the unions and the, the National Union of Teachers in particular being on side, they would get their members to um, support these sorts of activities. And the, um, so the, the making of cards, the writing of letters, um, the collecting of money, to uh, the donation of, of books and so on, was all part of it. So it took 50 years, the better part of really, to, to get changed. So I got involved in 1986. Mandela was released in 1990. So I wasn't, in, in a way, my, um, my involvement with the anti-apartheid movement itself was relatively short compared with what all that had come before. Well, you can certainly say the benefits have lasted in terms of um, apartheid did end. Um, people are critical of some of what happens in South Africa now and the fact that people haven't necessarily reaped what we used to call in active Southern Africa, which I joined later, which was a successor to the anti-apartheid movement, we had the whole campaign about South Africa reaping the fruits of freedom, and the people of South Africa reaping the fruits of freedom. So despite the, those, um, the, the, what may not be ideal economically for people in South Africa, the fact is that apartheid had to end as, as, a, as a minimum non-negotiable towards economic and social justice for people. And so that definitely happened. So apartheid did end, but there were small victories along the way. 
there was a the victory of Barclays Bank withdrawing from South Africa, mainly I think because of the pressure of the students in the UK, that forced Barclays Bank to, to leave. And if you think about it, for them to do something that involves children and young people who, once they are on board, they are going to, it could be for Barclays, all of these people would never ever be bankers, bank at Barclays, for example. So, so the looking forward, the consequences were, were, were of that for them. Was it? So they decided to um, leave South Africa. So that was a, a significant success along the way. And there were lots of other, so the successes of people not uh, um, touring their cricket with, you know, and so on. People like Peter Hayne were significantly involved in that particular campaign. So there was, what I would say is there's something around in any of these tactics about the short-term wins and trying to have to, some short wins that you can celebrate along the way that gives a sense of the possibility of a future. So I would say that those shorter term victories, the, the, the victories along the way of people disinvesting and then ultimately Mandela being released and then ultimately apartheid ending and Mandela becoming president. I think that the, the um, I think you see the energy definitely um, and I think that Extinction Rebellion is probably the closest I would say in terms of the kind of mass movement energy and a clear set of tactics. But I've come across a number of young people who, and, and um, Stop the War was another one where I spoke to some students who talked about, who kept saying that we, are, we would like to begin to get some of the traction that anti-apartheid had and how do we do that? So you've come across people who weren't alive at the time, but still are looking to the anti-apartheid movement and its tactics and approaches to, as the way of thinking about their own activity and their own um, actions. I love seeing it when young people deploy similar tactics, to be honest. So the tactics of, of mass movement, uh, protesting against stop and search. So there is something about saying, many of us who've been activists as young people actually end up in quite senior positions, whether in the public sector or the private sector. And you can do things like fair pay as a manager. So all of us who were involved in anti-apartheid struggle or any other struggle, you might be a middle manager now or a senior manager, what can you do in your job to further justice? Um, and don't see it as a separate thing. So living your life as a in pursuit of justice means not just doing it on a Saturday, but taking that into your workplace. So initially I wasn't a senior manager, so I joined the trade union. I was active in the trade unions, campaigning for decent pay for the lowest paid worker. When I was a senior manager, I supported and, and moved along and made the money possible for teaching assistants to get a fair pay and career structure and pursuing the London living wage in Islington. The politicians in Islington absolutely were on it and happy to sign up. 
when times are tight and when you haven't got money, that's when justice and equality matter more, actually. Not when there's time enough so you, nobody notices particularly, that's when it matters more. So I think that the, 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 quest, the thing for me is about doing whatever you can in whatever space you are in. Uh, citizens, London citizens who, uh, and Citizens UK who lead on the living wage, they had did some really quite creative things. I don't know if you ever saw their Tesco stickers. So they, they created stickers. I wish I'd kept them because they're so amazing. It looks like a proper Tesco's normal sticker, but they're made. So until you look closely, you don't realize that it's actually a living wage campaign. So it's a test, it would every little count, something or other, the Tesco thing, and it would have the, the, the living wage on it, but, but very, very creative in that. And then the other thing that they, they did, which I thought was great, is they got all the cleaners across some civil service departments to leave a letter on the, on the desks of all the, of the ministers and the director generals and so on, basically saying, you never meet me because I'm, I'm gone by the time you come, but I've got, I'm on a way that I can't live on. And I clean your office every day. So, what, that thing of doing what you can when you can. So to, to some people might think, well, what can a cleaner do? And actually you are in the offices that, of the powerful and the rich and powerful. So there is a lot that you can do that is legal. For more podcasts in this series, search for Journey to Justice on any podcast platform. If you're interested in education for economic justice or community action, visit www.economicinjustice.org.uk to make the most of our resources.